good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Firuze Dumas. She's author of It Ain't So Awful Falafel. She's a New York Times bestselling Iranian Iranian-American author, born in Iran. Uh, she is a frequent commentator on NPR, and her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Feroze. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. Okay, we're going to be talking about your new book, It Ain't So Awful, So Awful. Um, you traditionally have not written books for young people. Your books have focused on uh, on adults, but now this particular book has is a book for young readers. Uh, so why now? Why write this book? Um, you know, you've had other best-selling books, Funny and Farsi, and Laughing Without an Accent, but this book is the first one for young readers. So what inspired you to start writing for kids? Well, when my in Farsi, it was it's a memoir and it's nonfiction, obviously, and. What I found was that even though I'd written it for adults, lots and lots of educators who teach in middle school and high school and colleges were using it. And after I wrote my second, the second part of my memoir, which was Laughing Without an Accent, I decided that my next book was going to be actually geared towards a younger audience. And I started writing It Ain't So Awful, Falafel back in 2008. Uh, so... You know, people think that, you know, it's so timely now. They think that I sort of looked at what's happening in America and decided to write a book. But that's actually not not the case. Uh, so I, I had been planning on writing this book for, for a long time. And It Ain't So Awful, Falafel is actually historical fiction, whereas my adult work is nonfiction. Historical fiction. Okay, so we're going to... I guess what's so interesting about your book, and I can understand why people thought that you, you know, you started writing in 2008, but it is so appropriate for now. I guess the issues are the same, and let's talk about that, maybe go back into what happened to you in your childhood, because some of what happened to you and coming from Iran and living in California and experiencing xenophobia and all of those kinds of things, the same thing is happening now. And I, and I assume it's important for not only us as adults, but also children to understand the political climate, and which is what your book, I think, accomplishes. Well, uh, you know, when I came to America in 1972, and my father was an engineer, and he had a two-year assignment to work with an American company who was building an oil refinery in Iran. So we were here for two years. We were in Whittier, California, and I can honestly say we experienced nothing but kindness from Americans. And we absolutely fell in love with America and, and, and with its people. And two years, uh, well, my father's assignment ended. We went back to Iran for two years, and then he came back for the same assignment two years later. So we happened to be in America when the Iranian Revolution happened and when a group of Americans were taken hostage in the American embassy in Iran. So we were here when America turned against Iran and when all Iranians became suspect and, you know, people were chanting, Iranians go home. And, you know, this was so different from the America that we'd initially experienced. And I knew that at some point I wanted to write about this because at that time I was the only Iranian in my school. This was before the wave of immigration. So I went through something very difficult alone. And... You know, now, of course, in America, you know, there's such an, you know, anti-immigrant uh, sentiment. But for me, it was very different because at the time, we literally were the only Iranian family in our town. And one thing I do want to add, because um, it's I'm not so obvious so far by this interview, these books are actually very funny. I mean, I, I'm a humorist. So this book, my, It Ain't So Awful, Falafel, is a work of historical fiction, but it's a very funny story. It's a coming-of-age story based on experiences that I really had. So I, I think that probably that, you know, the fact that you are able to use humor, um, I, I, you know, is obviously very important, especially when you're writing children's books. But I, I want to get back... 
I want to get back to like your story, you know, it, more in detail, like what happened to you? Because, you know, we're talking about the 70s. That's a long time ago. And just in terms of what's happening now politically, it's to me, it seems like, you know, we haven't progressed at all in terms of how we view immigrants or, uh, and I mentioned the word xenophobia. Um, why, why are in your opinion, why are we at, the, at this point or still at the same point we were in the 70s? Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, in, in the 70s, when I was 13 years old in the late 70s when the American hostages were taken, and, you know, at that point, most Americans had never heard of Iran. And the first time they ever heard of Iran is, was because of the hostages. So all of a sudden, you know, Americans had this incredibly negative impression of all Iranians. And, and as a kid, you know, as a 13-year-old, I just found it really interesting that people would literally blame an entire country for the actions of a few really horrible people. And, you know, you, I felt like if, if Americans knew anything about Iran prior to the hostage-taking, you know, they would at least have a more balanced view of, of what was going on. And I think that that, that that same problem exists today because... You know, like, especially this younger generation, all they know about the Middle East is terrorism. And, I, I mean, I hate to say this, but I think there are a lot of Americans who truly think that all Middle Easterners are basically terrorists. And that, you know, we may look like your average neighbor, you know, you're, you're just your average family trying to live a life, but so many people just think you look down underneath it. If you dig a little deeper, you know, mind you, we are just all terrorists. And that is really, that is tragic. And I have to tell you, there was a an English teacher recently who had had her students read my first book, Funny and Farsi, and she told all the kids to, to send me an email. So I got about 50 emails, and many of the kids said to me, before I read your book, I just hated all Middle Easterners. But when I read your book, I saw that your family was just my family, and I couldn't believe how funny you are. And, you know, that, that's really sad. I think that's really sad. I mean, imagine if you know, there's a country out there that thinks that all Americans are just terrible people. I mean, that's, it, it's a tragedy where everyone loses. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, they read one book. They read your book and the impact of the power of your book to be able to, to change the way they think. I mean, and, you know, writing this book with humor and then you're just like, you know, you're just like we are. You know, you laugh, you cry, you have a family. Um, and it, it just took you know, reading your book and discussing it with a teacher to influence and to change their minds. Because I think on the other side of it, and obviously the media just portrays, as you described before, you know, terrorists and all Middle Easterners are terrorists. And most people in the United States haven't traveled to the Middle East. Um, So they, you know, their point of reference is just what they see on television. And it's usually pretty negative. is when you think about it, when is the only time that American teenagers are in the news? It's usually when they've done something horrible, like there's a mass shooting somewhere. Whereas, you know, I know from, from my work, there are wonderful teenagers all over the United States. I wish they were on the evening news once in a while. Are we getting back to what sells? What, you know, I mean, what people tune into right. for well, some reason? Why are they attracted to this kind of, you know, they, they're not attracted to the good stuff. They want to see all the, the you know, the right. kind of the evil and, you yeah, know. You know, there's so, an expression, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. So how do you change that? Well, you change it by your, uh, you know, by your writings, obviously, and, and by, and, and it's wonderful that you focus this time on young people. I was having this discussion with my talking about your book and actually talking about what you've done to my daughter-in-law, who is a teacher. And I said, what about the books that she teaches third and fourth grade? Like, what kinds of books do they have today for kids that are more realistic in terms of, you know, really other countries and history? And she said, well, it's changing. And they are beginning to be, you know, more in tune to politics and more relevant, but not completely. So... I guess we have a long way to go. I've noticed that, like, when schools have reading lists that do include books about the Middle East, they do tend to be incredibly depressing books that give the impression that, you know, all Middle Eastern men are, you know, oppressive and all women are oppressed and sad. And, you know, I am am a, a woman from the Middle East. I am neither oppressed nor sad. And, you know, I love the fact that kids tell me that my books are the only books on their reading list that are funny. Because it goes so against stereotype. 
And I cannot tell you how many times, and I'm I travel all over the United States, so I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, I was shocked that I laughed out loud when I was reading your books, because that is the last thing that most people expect when they, when they think, well, I'm going to read a book written by a Middle Eastern woman. It's more like, let's get the box of Kleenex, but yeah. you don't do that with my books. <laughs> so when they say that to you, that I, you go to these, you know, you're, you're going across the country, talking about your books, promoting your book. When they say that to you, what do you say? Why are you shocked? What kind of responses do you get? Why would you be so shocked that, you know, I, I laugh and, and we laugh and families laugh in the Middle East and I'm not this sad, horrible person? What kind of response do you get? Well, you know, here's the thing. First of all, I'm very glad they read my book. But I'm actually not surprised because I see what kind of media coverage Middle Easterners get in the news. How can anybody know that there are actually other people who are not scary who are in the Middle East? That the only people who get coverage, who get media coverage, are the scary ones. You know, I've written three books, two of which are New York Times bestsellers. Most people have never heard of me. You know, I, I'm not the kind of person that the media covers because I, I'm, I'm just not a, I'm, I'm a very normal person. And whenever I feel like there's somebody on the news that's from the Middle East, there has to be some terrible tagline that goes with them. You know, having a well-adjusted Middle Eastern immigrant, that is not headline news. Yeah, so that, and that doesn't fit the picture. That's sort of like off. It's a little bit off. doesn't fit the picture. I, I was in, right. uh, in uh, Dubai a few years ago and spent time on the beach and, and, and with friends, and I, and I was relating this to some of my friends when I got back to the United States, and there was kind of this surprise. Well, they go to the – and I, I was talking about picnicking on the beach or whatever it was, and it was like you picnicked on the beach and you people were swimming and families were out, <laughs> and there was this kind of like that's real. I mean, I, mean, I know Dubai is kind of – a special, a different kind of place, or very somewhat unique. But they were really not in tune to that. They were very, you know, we just had normal days of going to the beach and going out to eat and having fun and you know going to people's apartments, and that was a surprise. Right. Well, again, you know that that really doesn't surprise me because how are people supposed to know if they don't learn about it in school or ever see it on television? Well, in light of your book, there is, has been, and I think there is more of a push, uh, for, let's take it back to children's literature, you know, for more diversity in children's literature, the gay, the gay community, different kinds of parenting, um, you know, issues of bullying have been addressed. So there is kind of a, a move to say, you know, it's important to, to embrace diversity and to understand it. And I think that's a good thing. So I, I would think that, I mean, do you agree with that? Well, you know, you know, diversity is, is one of those topics that I didn't choose, but it chose me. You know, uh-huh. I was born in Iran. I was raised in America. I'm married to a Frenchman. So, you know, whether I like it or not, diversity seems to have found me. I, I think that, you know, throughout my life, I, I've always been an avid reader, and I've always enjoyed reading about different types of people, and I feel like it's just expanded my mind and my soul and my heart. And so I don't see a downside to having diverse characters. And I think I always say that, you know, when you learn about another culture, it's like you open a window in, in your soul. And who doesn't want more windows? I mean, when you think about it, what kind of building has a lot of windows? Cathedrals. So I, you know, I think it's all good. And, you know, I'm always stunned that there are people opposed to having their children read books about diverse characters. I don't know what they're afraid of. Because it's not like you read that book and, and you become like that. <laughs> you know, you can read my books. You will not become a Middle Easterner. Oh, you know, you can, you can read books about, you know, the struggles of, of, of somebody who whatever, has whatever challenges. It doesn't mean that that's going to happen to you. It just means you're going to be probably just a little bit kinder. And that's, I don't see a downside to that. Well, maybe uh, it creates an ambivalence in people. You know, certain, it's difficult for people to, they want to think that what they do is the only way to do it or the only way to raise their children or whatever, the only, and so that when you introduce diversity, whatever, wherever it comes from, it makes them uncomfortable and they don't want to feel that ambivalence about maybe the way they live their own lifestyle. So they sort well, of and I, and I think try to... that, that when you learn about other people as humans, it, it takes away the black and white arguments. You know, like, you know, in, in Western movies, the good guys wore the black hats and the good, I mean, I'm sorry, the bad guys wore the black cowboy hats and the good guys wore the white cowboy hats. 
And I think sometimes people want life to be that simple. And, you know, there's, the life is, is one of the gray area. And, and this is hard for people to grasp. I mean, people want things in a sound bite. They want it very black and white, easy, easy to digest. And in, in reality, life just isn't like that. And when you think of the Middle East, I mean, I, I know right now a lot of people in, in America just think Middle East is bad. There's, I mean, you look at the Middle East and all the history and all the art and all the, and all the contributions that the Middle Easterners have made to this world. And even now, you look at, you know, the struggles that people have and, and normal people trying to, to reach their dreams and become the best versions of themselves under very oppressive governments. I mean, there's a lot going on, uh, but it, it just doesn't fit that black and white um, explanation. So, so we tend not to hear about it. I think that's true. I think what, um, let's get back also to books. What inspired you? What, what books when you were younger inspired you? Oh, I, oh my gosh. I loved books. I, books saved my life. You know, my family moved around a lot. So I was always a new kid in school. And for me, books were just a constant. And I remember getting my first library card when I was seven years old from the Whittier Public Library, and it just changed my life. I couldn't believe that I could go to this place and get all the books I wanted for free. And, you know, I, people say to me, you know, are there, is there such a thing as a, as a flying, magical flying carpet? I say, yes, it's called a library card. Um, so I, there, books just inspire me all the time. I mean, I love, I just love reading about people's stories and I just, I, I just love reading. You know, I'm just one of these people who, who thinks that having a good book to read is just one of the top ten best things in the world. So what about your book? What do you think, what do you want people to take, well, not just the, the children who read the book, but teachers and academics and parents, what do you want them to take away from your book? You know, for me, whenever I finish a book that I really, really like, I, I, get, I get a little sad because now I have to leave those characters. And so I hope that when people read my book and they're finished with it, they feel a little sad. (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell you, the funny thing, this book, It Ain't So Awful Falafel, took me seven years to write. And the book came out in May, and I've had, you know, a lot of reviewers and a lot of people have, have responded. And many people say, oh, I just read this book in two days. In fact, a lot of my younger readers say, I just sat down, I finished it in two days. And I tell them, look, it took me seven years to write. Please spend at least a week reading this book. Or if you do finish it in two days, make sure that you have, give it to someone else to read as well. So everybody's reading it, right? And make sure they know about the book. Um, but oh, why did it take you so long? Or is that just, I mean, you're a New York Times bestselling author. You've written other books. That obviously, it sounds like it didn't take you quite as long to write them. No. Was this, well, this one, yeah. First of all, this was my first foray into writing for a younger audience. And usually, usually I write nonfiction. I write for adults. And I, and I think nonfiction is actually pretty easy because I don't have to make a plot or make up characters. I just, I just tell something that already happened. Now, with this book, first of all, it was a younger audience, and I was writing fiction. And it took me a long time to figure out what it means to write for a younger audience because... I am of the belief that a good story is a good story. I mean, obviously, there's content that is inappropriate for younger audiences, but people who even know my adult work, everything I write is very G-rated, so that wasn't my issue. So it took me a long time to figure out what it means to write for a younger audience. And at the end of it, the only difference for me is that the amount of history that I put in the book, because I wanted... I wasn't writing a history book, but I wanted to write a book that would teach the history of what happened between the U.S. and Iran in the late 70s, early 80s. So that took me a long time to figure out just what what the right amount of information is. And the second thing that is geared towards younger audiences in this book is the title. It ain't so awful falafel. I thought, you know, this this is a title that a young young person would, would pay attention to. But other than that, I mean, I think... Authenticity is what I aim for in everything that I write, and, I, and authentic, authenticity is what resonates with readers. I don't care if you're 9 or 99. People connect with authenticity. So what happens? Is there a point? I mean, because that's all, you know, you're talking about uh, what you were trying to accomplish, but is there any time that you felt like, I, can't, I just am not going to be able to do this? I mean, this is taking me no. too long. I do want to be authentic. No. No, because... When, when, when that bug, when you're bitten by that bug, when you have a story you have to tell, it's like 
you know, you, you just have to, you have to do it. I mean, I couldn't, I would not be able to live my, with myself if I quit. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not an option. I mean, that's the thing. When you have this, this creative dream, and I, I can't describe it. It's something so deep. It's like a, it's something that has to come out of you. And it, it just has to come out. And, and, you know, this just happened to have taken seven years. And so what happens with the rest of your family or the people in your life who love you and support you? Or do they, con- I mean, in your experience, are they supportive? Do they get frustrated? What's it like, you know, having to be around you when you're writing a book for, you know, all those years? <laughs> well, this is a portion of the interview where I give the phone to my husband. Uh, well, you know, I, I have three kids and, uh, and, and a husband, and they're all, I mean, they're all supportive. I mean, they, they realize that writing is what I do. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I don't think anybody chooses to be a writer. I think being a writer just kind of chooses you. So I, I don't have an option. Once, once there's something I have to write, I just have to write it. And they know you, and that's what you do, and that's who you are, I guess, is what you're saying. You have It is, and changed. also I, I mean, should say that um, I write very early in the mornings when I'm working on a project. I will get up, you know, 4, four o'clock, four thirty, five o'clock. Definitely I'm up by 5. So I tend to do most of my writing before the day starts for most people. And, and you, you know, know, I mean, anybody out there who has kids knows that you can't just say, you know, I'm busy right now. I have to, I have to work on something. So I have to, that's the hardest balance for me is, is trying to write while still being a semi-decent mother. Mm-hmm. And why? Well, it sounds like you're a really good mother. <laughs> Uh, but do you ever wake up in the middle of the night, oh my, and you just have this, you know, it's not an epiphany necessarily, but I have to get up and start writing because something comes oh, to you. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know what, there's a point, and, I, and I've heard writers say this, and I never knew what this meant because I always wrote nonfiction, but when I was writing It Ain't So Awful, So Awful, there was a point where the characters started writing themselves, and I would literally wake up in the middle of the night and hear one of them saying something. I mean, okay, I, it sounds like I'm describing mental illness, but it, it, it's, it, it's just a process where at some point the book just starts writing itself. When, you know, when, uh, no, it doesn't sound like mental illness. Uh, I, I just want to, I mean, it sounds like something, I mean, it sounds understandable, I guess, because it, it is who you are. Because the book becomes a part of you or you're a part of the book or it's all tied together. Um, how old were you when you wrote your first book when, when you sat down to do this? So that is a good question because I started writing. I joined a writer's group when I was 36 years old. And my first two kids had finally ended up in kindergarten, and I had three hours a day to myself. So I joined a writer's group. And I, you know, I never in a million years thought I'd ever be published. I mean, I was just writing stories for my kids. And when were you first published? Or did you, I mean, you said you never thought you would be. Did you pursue it? Did you say, okay, you know what? I'm pretty good. Or people told you this you know, when I'm writing, I really do have something to say. What was the process? Well, was, how, how did that happen? You know, I, I was in this writing group, and uh, September 11th happened. And a friend of mine, who was actually not in the group, but who had read my story, said, you know, you should try to get published because there's nothing out there that has anything to do with a Middle Eastern family that is even remotely funny or shows the human side of, of the Middle East. And so that was what got me going uh, on trying to, to get published. And I was published... When I was 39, and people always say, why did you wait so long to write? And to be perfectly honest with you, when you're an immigrant, when you just never think about going into something creative. It's just so risky. I mean, I always thought to be a writer, you have to be English and dead. So I was more surprised by, you know, than anybody else to be published. Well, that's a very interesting concept. So you have to do something. If you're an immigrant, then we only have a couple minutes left. So, uh, but the idea is that you have to do something, what, that's going to be a, be a professional, be a business person, but you don't go into the art because that's risky no, it's business. Risky. That's the art, you know, at least in my Iranian family, you know, nobody, it, 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 in my family, you could be a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. So... You know, to be an artist, first of all, we don't have a single artist in, in my family, even though I have a huge extended family. And in my particular family, you know, if you ask my, my parents what they think of, you know, an artist, I think they probably think of somebody who, like, sleeps in late and probably does drugs and, you know, has a messy room. And uh, so, you know, I, did, I didn't really grow up thinking being an artist was any kind of possibility. Uh, 
but somehow it that's and I keep getting back to it. It's just it, it seems to me it's just a part of who you are, and you just kind of had to peel away the onion, you know, the, the layers, I guess, because it's something that that was always there, and then you pursued it, and obviously, and then. Um, would you say 39 was the first time when your book was published? I mean, that's, um, yeah. Okay. So we have a a minute left. Uh, it ain't so awful falafel. I know you have a new project. We didn't get a chance to talk about that, the falafel kindness project, but that's something else you're doing. So give us the website for both the book and for the project. Um, so it's all on the same website. Okay. Um, and I just want to say for educators, I have tons of free material for educators that go with the books, including free study guides, videos that go with the books. My website is just my first and last name, com. I know it's a hard name to spell, but you can get it off the Internet. Great. com. Well, it was great talking to you today. Good luck with the book. Um, and uh, it ain't so awful, so awful. Um, Go out and buy the book. Great book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Amy Tutor. She is author of Pushback, Guilt in the Age of Natural Parenting. Uh, she's a Harvard-trained obstetrician, gynecologist, author, and mother of four. Uh, Dr. Amy Tutor addresses the guilt that too often destroys the confidence of new mothers and mothers-to-be and subjects them to a never-ending storm of judgment about their most intimate parenting choices. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on the show, Doctor. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's start with uh, the natural parenting movement is really what I guess you're addressing in this book uh, because there are a lot of what you're supposed to be doing as a new mother, as a pregnant, you know, even it starts back from the moment you're pregnant and really, I guess, inflicts a, a lot of guilt on mothers who don't or are apparently not doing it the way they should be doing it, whatever the should is. So, okay. Let's start with what are some of these shoulds? What are we telling young mothers that they should or should not be doing, and why are we putting them in a position of feeling guilty about how they about their parenting choices? 
Well, I think um, what we tell mothers varies uh, across time. Most people don't realize that because they think whatever's happening now is the way it's always been. But at the moment, what we're telling uh, pregnant women is that they must have an unmedicated vaginal birth or they're somehow a failure. They must breastfeed exclusively for six months to a year or they're somehow a failure. And they must uh, carry their baby around all the time, let the baby sleep in um, their bed at night, uh, and basically uh, devote every waking moment to the baby. Uh, Otherwise, they should feel guilty. And the truth is that that's not how parenting was over time. And... There are some very specific reasons why uh, these things are advocated now, and <laughs> the main reason is, is not because it's good for babies. There's no evidence that any of these things are good for babies, but it reflects what would be, we believe about women and what they should be doing with themselves and their bodies. Okay. So this is theoretical, in other words? This really isn't based on scientific knowledge that if you do these kinds of things or do you have what you just described, that the baby's going to be better or you know, a, a better baby and a, you know, do, you know, a, a, you know, grow up into a, a more productive adult or whatever it is. Like, this has nothing to do with science. It has to do with what? It has to do with just Well, it has very trend. little to do with yes. science, but it has a lot to do with the philosophy. And, uh, you know, these things are promoted as better for babies because if you want to market something to mothers, there's no better way than to convince them that uh, they will be doing something good for their children, and that's why women feel guilty when they don't do it. But one of the goals of um, the book is to show women that it's not really based on science. Uh, it, uh, the natural parenting movements have become industries in themselves. They're selling products. But most importantly, it's based on some deep-seated beliefs about uh, women and their bodies, uh, for most of human existence, women were judged by three things, uh, their breasts, their uh, vaginas, and their uterus. And natural parenting, once again, judges women by those three things, how they perform on childbirth and breastfeeding and um, other physical tasks of mothering. And it completely ignores the needs of mothers and the value of mothers' uh, intelligence, talents, character in raising healthy, happy children. Uh, Can we tackle each one of those separately? I mean, we're kind of talking about a a general philosophy of child-rearing, natural parenting. But, okay, let's start from the beginning. Where does it start in terms of what you should do as a natural parenting and starts to make mothers feel like, Guilty. Uh, it starts, I guess, with birth, right? How you should have, um, how you should, or, yeah. Most of the things around pregnancy are things that people can do, you know, uh, and, and they do have some scientific basis like avoiding alcohol and avoiding drugs and don't smoke. Uh, so it's, most people don't end up feeling guilty about pregnancy, but the first real hurdle is birth. And there is a way that you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to have an unmedicated vaginal birth, and that's supposedly better for babies. But um, it really isn't better for babies, and it completely ignores women's needs for pain relief and uh, for some semblance of controlling what happens in labor. Now, what about the fact that you say it isn't necessarily or it isn't good for babies? Is it bad for babies? I mean, my maybe I'm sort of like I was into the, by the time I had my third child, I you know, natural parenting um, and no drugs. And the assumption was then my baby's not getting any drugs either. And uh, so that's a good thing. Um, but well, not necessarily true. Well, like when you have dental work. So you have Novocaine for your teeth, and it takes away the pain. But do you feel sedated when you have Novocaine? You don't. You're awake and completely aware. And an epidural is sort of the, um, it's an equivalent to Novocaine for pain relief because it uses the same kind of drugs and operates on the same principles. 
So if it doesn't sedate the mother, and it certainly doesn't, how are these drugs going to sedate the baby or harm the baby in any way? They aren't. But uh, there has grown up around uh, childbirth this idea that epidurals are harmful for babies. And while epidurals do have side effects, all the side effects are for the mother, not the baby. I think one of the things that and, and that's an issue has been an issue for me is very often I think that physicians do not take into account the individual mother, and it's like it's sort of best practices at the time, and best practices change. You know, I'm saying every 20 years or every generation, and that's all they are is best practices. They're not, the babies, we haven't, the baby is the same, we, evolutionary-wise, right? They, they haven't changed. So what we do to them changes. But it's not necessarily an individualized, you know, taking into account this particular mother. It's sort of like we start giving them food at six months. Maybe that baby or mother would be better off if she's nursing, giving it, not you know, the baby wants food not till nine months or, you know, and, and so I always found that there wasn't sort of a, an individual approach to uh, child, to motherhood and um, parenting. It was sort of well, the best Well, it's practice. funny that you mentioned that because in the book I talk about how it's exactly the opposite, that natural parenting is one size fits all. You know, everybody's supposed to have an unmedicated vaginal birth without intervention. Right. Not taking into account the fact that women are different, babies are different, there are premature babies, there are complications that develop during childbirth. Same thing with breastfeeding. They say every baby should be breastfed from six months to a year or longer, but not every woman makes enough breast milk to fully support a baby. Um, We know that. And uh, so that, I, I think medicine and doctors are far more nuanced in their treatment of pregnant women and new mothers and new babies than these movements are because the um, in medicine we're always looking for the best outcome. You know, we, we judge ourselves by whether or not the mother and baby are healthy and thriving. In natural parenting, it's all about the process, not the outcome. So it... it you know, the, the claim is that unmedicated vaginal birth is best for all babies. But that isn't true. It isn't even remotely true. And there are lots of complications of childbirth. Childbirth is actually inherently dangerous. I know it doesn't look that way, but it doesn't look that way because of modern obstetrics and all the interventions that are used so liberally. We've made it seem safe. It's kind of like um, the anti-vax movement. You know, people question vaccines because they don't see vaccine-preventable diseases, but that's because we use vaccines. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, yeah, it's it becomes the things that we just sort of accept as, as normal um, medical practice uh, is you know, is, is, is because of all these advances and when we're talking about uh, obstetrics, and, and I think that's definitely true. And if you go to other countries or developing countries, you certainly can see the, the huge differences. I, I just was getting back to, though, I think with each one, I have, you have four children, I have three, yeah. each one of the, yeah, and each, situ- and each doctor, each situation was different, and my needs were different. So right. um, I do agree, yeah, and I do agree with you. I think that it's, it's important to, to, to uh, and, you know, some physicians were more accepting than others, and um, you have to find the, uh, the one that's good for you, or good, I agree. Um, let's talk about this another, I think this whole issue of, you know, breastfeeding versus formula feeding, and what's the best and what's not best. Let's talk about that, because... I think there's a lot of confusion amongst young mothers about that. You know, they do feel forced to, you know, if I don't breastfeed my baby, I'm a failure. Well, you know, I will tell you, I breastfed all four of my children. They're, they're all adults now. And I enjoyed it, and it was relatively easy, all things considered. But I will also tell you that the claims and benefits for breastfeeding are just grossly exaggerated. You know, the benefits of breastfeeding breastfeeding around the world are mainly 
um, the result of the fact that in a lot of places water is contaminated. And if you make formula with contaminated water, you make babies sick or even die. But in countries with access to clean water, the benefits of breastfeeding are actually trivial. They, they come down to a few less colds and a few less episodes of diarrheal illness across the entire population of infants in the first year. And so while uh, breastfeeding is a good thing, and if you want to breastfeed and you can breastfeed, I highly, highly recommend it. It's not right for every mother, and it's not right for every baby. And there's no harm in feeding your baby formula. And I think that's really a critical thing that women need to understand. And I, and I think most of us actually kind of know it because two whole generations of Americans, um, our parents' generation and, and the one before, were raised nearly exclusively on formula and nothing bad happened. Everybody did fine. And in fact, over the course of the 1900s, the breastfeeding rate tra- changed dramatically. It started off about mm, over 90% in 1900 and dropped to uh, its lowest point in 1973, which is about 24% of women were breastfeeding. And it's rebounded back to over 75%. And during that entire time, infant mortality dropped. And uh, infant mortality dropped precipitously when people were using formula. I mean, it was unrelated to formula. It was related to medical advances. But since breastfeeding has become in vogue, uh, it has continued to drop, but actually at a much slower trajectory. But what that indicates is that the population-based benefits that are claimed for breastfeeding, we, we just can't find them. You know, they're not there. You look at, uh, you look at um, infant mortality, life expectancy, et cetera, there's no evidence that breastfeeding has, has any impact on those things. And well, given as, the fact, I say, yeah. as I say, it's a good thing. But if you can't, if you don't make enough milk or if you have a job that's incompatible with pumping or there's a whole host of reasons you don't need to feel guilty about that. You have not harmed your baby in any way. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that is, as you say in your book, and it is important, obviously, to make that clear to mothers, young mothers, new mothers. Um, I think one of the things and the advantages was not necessarily, let's say, in my I'm probably similar generation to you, was the fact that the actual physical calmness that come, and I breastfed my babies too, so they were, I don't know, a year and a half, and there was a real kind of a physical well-being that happened when I breastfed my babies, you know, that whole letdown thing and that kind of thing, and that was a plus. I mean, I was able to do it, and uh, actually at that time, they weren't, were not encouraging breastfeeding necessarily, so I was kind of fighting the other in the other direction. Like, right. I, <laughs> well, I think the, you know, discouraging breastfeeding is a bad thing. Yeah. The point is that it should be a decision that every mother makes based on her baby's needs, her needs, and the actual science behind breastfeeding. Because, you know, the one thing that natural parenting never talks about, and I think is the most critical ingredient of good mothering, is actually love. It's not the physical actions that you perform. It's how you how you care about your child and how you let your child know that. And you can transmit just as much love formula feeding as you can breastfeeding. Yeah. So it's how you, the love and how you connect to your child. And that has to be, that those are in, that's an individual experience. People, you know, right. and I agree with you. Yeah, and that's and families are very different. And and I also and I think the idea, you know, like the I forgot what you refer to it as the uh, choice of uh, attachment parenting. Um, right. What are you? Re- yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that attachment parenting. What What is it? What are the well, attachment parenting has the name that it does because it, it implies that it has to do with what we know about infant attachment. The ironic thing is it's actually 180 degrees different from what we know about infant attachment. 
um, mother-infant attachment was studied extensively in the 40s, 50s, and 60s by people like John Bowlby and Harry Harlow. And what they found was that um, babies did not need a perfect mother and babies did not need to be breastfed or carried around or anything else. What they found was that babies need what they called the good enough mother, which is the mother who tries to meet the baby's needs and conveys that to the baby. And it doesn't even have to be the mother. It can be the father, a grandparent, a caregiver, but just somebody that the baby can look to for comfort and reassurance. In contrast, attachment parenting says that there are specific behaviors that mothers must engage in, otherwise their babies won't bond to them. And I think we know from practical experience that children will bond to any parent unless there's very severe abuse. So the ironic thing about attachment parenting, which purports to be natural, is that bonding between mother and infant is natural and spontaneous, but they make it sound like it's a big problem, and if you don't do everything Uh, the way that you're told to do it, that your baby might not bond to you or you might not bond to your baby. And that's nonsense. And there's a reason it it was uh, promulgated. You know, when in doing research for the book, I went back, the, the people most closely associated with attachment parenting are Bill and Martha Sears. Um, Dr. Sears is a pediatrician. His wife is a nurse. And I found one of their earliest books in which they discussed their theory, and it was the um, Christian Guide to uh, Baby and Child Care, or, or something similar. I, I'm not, I don't recall the exact name. And in it, they said that attachment parenting was something that they received from God. They prayed on it, and he told them that this is the way that the family should be ordered, with the husband as the head, and the wife um, as subservient and concerned only with raising children. And uh, if you follow attachment parenting, it's true that you can only be concerned with raising children because every minute of every day of a woman's life is controlled by something she supposedly has to do for her baby. And that's one of the most ironic things about the whole natural parenting thing, um, breastfeeding and, and natural childbirth also, is that these philosophies were started by men, as, uh, uh, most of them, and they were all started as ways to control women through their children, not as yeah, ways so there's to a real se- There is a real sexist component to all of this, is, is what you're saying. Absolutely. And, and people don't realize that because it's become so ingrained, but... Uh, you know, the guy that started natural childbirth, Grantley Dick Reed, he was pretty um, upfront about the fact that he was very concerned that the world was being overrun by the children of black and brown women and that he needed to encourage white women to have more children and they were too busy looking for political and economic rights. And so he told them that um, authentic women don't have pain in childbirth and if they have pain, it's their fault for not being authentic women and p- placing mothering at the heart of everything that they do. So, so you know, that, that's kind of eye-opening. Yeah, so, uh, so uh, behind all of these practices, there's kind of a, an overlay of sexism and racism, I guess, too, is what, uh, is, is oh, what yeah, you're saying. Oh, definitely. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Especially in the sense that... Um, you know, a lot of people who adopt natural parenting as their philosophy believe they're recapitulating what happened in nature and among indigenous peoples. But, you know, in indigenous societies, it takes a village to raise a child, not a vaginal birth. <laughs> That's true. And also, it, it, when you say it takes a village, I mean, we live in such isolated situations, a lot of young mothers, and there's no village. Sometimes there's not even another person there to help them. So, um, Right, but we, kind we of bring... tell them that they don't need that and they're not entitled to that, that they should be able right. to do it all by themselves. 
Yeah. I think this whole idea of, and, and you, obviously you talk about this in the book as well, but it's really important for mothers to meet their own needs as well as their baby's needs, and that involves a lot of different areas, but if they feel that they are doing something that's solely for themselves, that they should feel guilty, they're not a good mother, they're not a good parent, um, and it really is quite the opposite. Um, let's talk about that, because if you can't meet your own needs, then you're never going to be able to meet your baby's needs. Right, and and I think that um, you know there haven't been enough studies on the connection between natural parenting and postpartum depression, but certainly we're seeing a lot of depression, and it isn't unreasonable to wonder if whether these outsized expectations of what women are supposed to take on themselves, and the fact that they're supposed to ignore their own needs, whether that leads to um, uh, increased risk of postpartum depression. Because when you think about natural parenting, nowhere in there is there any concern for women. It's all about what women should be doing, not about what anybody should be doing to help women or anything else. They're supposed to be completely selfless and, uh, you know, give every moment of every day to their baby. And and I think most women find that if they spend a little time away from their baby, meeting their own needs, they are more refreshed and stronger and better able to meet their baby's needs than it than they would be if they ignore their own needs. What do you think about the difference between a uh, let's say because there are gender differences, and we kind of we've been you know touched on that. But do you think there is a, a difference between going to a female gynecologist as opposed to going to a male gynecologist or obstetrician? I think that's a very individual thing. I mean, I um, I have physicians who are male physicians, including my gynecologist, and physicians who are female physicians. Uh, I know that um, most physicians uh, do not view, uh, you know, as a woman, when I examined men, when I was a house officer, there was, there was nothing sexual about it. No man should have been afraid of me taking care of them. But some women feel uncomfortable with men taking care of them, and that's fine. I mean, you should do what makes you comfortable. Yeah, and I didn't mean so much the physiological, but we only have one minute left, so maybe we can answer that question. Uh, but just having to do with the, the male-female relationship in terms of patriarchal, we were talking about sexism, and um, that's a whole other show, I guess. But uh, <laughs> it's been great having you. <laughs> it's been great having you on the show today, and I want to mention the name of the book again: Pushback: Guilt in the Age of Natural Parenting. You can buy it on Amazon. I guess I assume bookstores everywhere. Uh, Dr. Amy Tudor, could you give us a website we can go to, and then we have to say goodbye. We got thirty seconds. Sure. My website is the Skeptical Ob. www. s k e p t i c a l o b. dot com. Great, great having you on the show. Um, we are going. To, we are going to say goodbye. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 